All right, good evening, everybody. If you want to turn your Bibles to Hebrews 1, that's where we'll be. We'll pray and we'll get started here. Lord, we thank you for uh, the worship. Just some time with you tonight. Um, days are getting shorter and, and um, it's hard to not begin to shut down and uh, get ready for bed <laughs> earlier and earlier, Lord. So as we sit here in your, in your nice, quiet, dark, um, special place here that you've provided for us, we pray that you'd Give us the rest. You tell us you give us. You give your beloved rest and that we be refreshed as well in your word as we spend time in just this peaceful time of studying your word, of letting your word penetrate our hearts and to encourage us, to lift us up, um, to bolster us in any way, Lord, you see fit tonight. We just, we surrender ourselves to you. We lay ourselves wide open for um, your blessing to come our way. In Jesus' name, amen. Hebrews is such a blessing, such a great book. We don't know the author of Hebrews. Um, we suspect it's Paul. I do. It sounds a lot like him. We know that at the end, in chapter 13, that he alludes, the writer does, alludes to the fact that he's with Timothy. And there's only so many people with that group. And there's only so many people in that group that had such a heart for the Jews that they would get themselves whooped and beat. And so I've got strong feelings about this. So if I make the mistake of declaring who the author is, even though the Bible doesn't say so, it's just my personal opinion. It is not firmly established. We don't know. We know, well, we don't know. There's a lot we don't know. <laughs> we think that it was written before 70 AD, about 64 AD, because the temple hasn't been destroyed at this time, because he talks about it so much. And if it had been destroyed, he probably would have brought that into the text, is what we think. So we think it was written before then. Now, a lot like um, Romans was a, a breakdown of the Christian faith for the Gentiles, Romans. Hebrews is much like that. It's very systematic as it tries to explain the faith to the Jews. So Romans would be for, not, not only, but the target audience was Rome or Romans or Gentiles in general, which is about everybody, Romans. And then this book was generally uh, being brought forth to the Hebrews, obviously. The, the title tells us that, but it's more than that. Um, we can glean from both books. The Jews can glean from uh, Romans, and, and, and we Gentiles can glean from Hebrews so much. Um, Hebrews tries to straighten out some issues that are taking place in the early church. Um, we talk a lot about the church having problems today. The church has always had problems. It isn't anything new. No one is getting more hurt now, or there isn't more problems or controversies in the church now than there were at the very first. I mean, the Corinthian church is one of the strongest most judgmental letters I've ever read towards people of faith, you know. In a good way, Paul took the time to begin to straighten out this Corinthian church that was so far off on many of their issues, many of their doctrines, still saved, still believers. It's written to believers, but boy, you got to get these things straightened out, and it's no different today. And so as we read a book entitled Hebrews, for the Hebrews, another person has said, another pastor has said, I'm going to steal the words from him, which we're warned about in the last days. But <laughs> he simply said, this is a book written by the Jews, or Jew, to the Jews, to tell them to stop being Jews, is the idea. And uh, I agree. It's very true. The tendency for the Jewish believers, the Jewish Christians was they were beginning to feel the pressure to come back to Judaism or add Christianity to Judaism when actually Christianity is the successor of Judaism. It's the next logical step. It was what Judaism was pointing to. Every sacrifice, every festival, every new moon, everything written in the Old Testament was pointing to the cross, all of it. So when the cross takes place, when Jesus, the Lamb of God, 
referring to all the other lambs that have ever been sacrificed were a foreshadowing of Jesus, the Lamb of God that would take away the sin of the world. The law, everything was completed. I don't think it's an accident that the temple was destroyed. I don't think it was a mistake. I don't think it was something to be mourned. I think God was like, I'm, I'm done with that. When Jesus went in the second time to the temple, you remember he came in in the beginning of his ministry, he went the first time. He came in a second time on the donkey right before he was to be crucified. And he told the Jews, I'm leaving to you your house, your house, not my house, desolate. I'm no longer there. And he would never return to the temple. He now dwells in the hearts of men. He tells us that. God doesn't dwell in a house made with man's hands, but he dwells in the hearts of men now. And we're filled with the Holy Spirit as the Shekinah glory is shown in the tabernacle, is shown in the temple, that moment when God decides to come in and make his presence known to sit on the mercy seat and the whole world could see the Shekinah glory, it's described, coming up out of God is here. He now dwells in our hearts because we're the temple of the Holy Spirit. They were never to return to Judaism, to the old, to the temple, to the external, to the sacrifices. That was all fulfilled in Christ and is all fulfilled in Christ. Which is great, provided you're not a Pharisee or a Sadducee or someone who made their money from that. Because now what do you do? I got to find a job. And that's not the only reason, but that was one of, they liked their power, they liked their influence, they liked their position in society. They were the most revered in all Israel. And now they're made, they're just men. They're equal. We have a new high priest now, Jesus Christ. There will be no other men called high priests anymore. We have one mediator between God and man, Jesus Christ. There will be no more priests making intercession for you. There's one that makes intercession for you now. Everything was fulfilled. So, reluctant to give up the power, reluctant to give up the position, probably the money, they began to bring a different narrative which we're all very familiar with, aren't we? What that's like when someone puts a new narrative or a twist that pleases them. That Christianity is now a cult. It's something to be shunned. Watch out for those Christians and, and so on. And if you didn't go that far, then they were told, add it. You know, it's fine that you're a Christian, but remember, you still have to be a Jew. There's a lot of problems with calling yourself a completed Jew. There's a lot of problems with calling yourself a messianic Jew. I, I, there, there are groups in those categories that understand what we're about to discuss here, but there are also groups in those categories that call themselves that, that believe you need both to be saved. You must have the old covenant and you must have the new covenant. And that's not what the Bible teaches and that's not what Hebrews is going to teach them. The new covenant fulfills and replaces the old covenant. We have a new covenant only now. It doesn't mean we don't study the Old Testament. It doesn't mean we don't understand the Old The old Covenant describes Christ, describes what he does for us in graphic detail. It's a beautiful picture of what Christ would do. If there's a New Testament truth, there's an Old Testament picture to describe that truth. It's very important to study all of it. But Christ is the fulfillment of these things. And this can be controversial because we like our traditions. And you'd be surprised how I just described the Roman letters for Romans, how much this Hebrew letter is going to actually apply to Gentiles too, because they and we even in the 21st century here have been duped into thinking some of those Old Testament things should have been brought along into the New Testament, and we should be doing these also as ritual. And all of that's been fulfilled. It's a spiritual walk with God now. We assemble together as brethren, praying, having fellowship. And that's what this is about. I'm not a priest. I have no more access to God than you. He called me to teach the Bible, so that's what I do. If none of you were here, I'd still be here. 
If all of you are here, I'm still here. I just do what God calls me to do. But I have no more access to God than anybody else in this world. He doesn't hear my prayers over yours. God hears nobody's prayers over yours, ever. Very important to understand. Will I pray for you? Of course. Will you pray for me? It's of equal importance, obviously. There's no difference. There's no more Jew. There's no more Gentile. There is no more slave. There's no more free. There's no more male. There's no more female. We're all one in Christ. There are two groups of people in the world, believers and unbelievers. That's it. Those are the only two. We have different purposes. We have different callings upon our life. Different things that the master wants us to do in his house and for his glory. But not one is better than the other. In fact, Paul spends chapters talking about how the eye cannot say to the ear and the ear cannot say to, as he describes the body of Christ saying, no one body part is better than any other. They're all necessary. Some are more out in the open. Some are hidden and concealed. But all very valuable and essential So that's what this book's about. To encourage, to set free Jewish believers that think and feel the pressure of society pulling them back into something they thought they were set free from or completed and fulfilled in Christ. But it's also a warning for all of us, Jews or Gentiles, to be careful not to be sucked into these things. Be careful about these things. And it is a constant battle. There's a constant pressure to go back to legalism, to go back to ritual instead of relationship. Always, always, always. And here's why. Because it appeals to our flesh. Our flesh, which is our default, our sin nature, always crying out, never seems to actually die, even though we reckon it dead, is always crying out, feed me, feed me, feed me. And the the flesh loves the outward. It loves to be seen. It loves people to see it doing, you know. But God is looking at the heart. And that's what this book is trying to explain to us. Verse 1. In this first chapter, we'll see the writer here showing how much greater Jesus was than the, the prophets, greater than the priests, greater than any other revelation that's ever been made of God. That he is the expressed image of of the Lord. Um, Better than angels. In fact, in this chapter, he will declare Jesus as God come in the flesh. The foundational chapter that the writer of Hebrews decides to start off with is that you must know one thing and one thing only to start. The bedrock, the foundation is that Jesus is not a created being. He's God come in the flesh. He's always been. He's never had a start. He will never have a finish. He always is. He's equal to the Father. He's equal to the Holy Spirit in power and in position. They have different callings, don't they? They have different roles, responsibilities, missions, if you would. But all equal. It says in verse 1, God who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, as in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and expressed image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels. He has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. He's not an angel. He's more than an angel. Down the street, we have the Jehovah's Witness. They believe Jesus is Michael the archangel with a new name, that he's a created being, that Satan, Lucifer, And Michael the archangel both bought their plans of salvation to God the Father. God chose Michael or Jesus' plan and rejected Satan's, and that's what sent Satan for a loop. 
And so therefore we have a battle now between Michael the archangel and Satan, or Lucifer the archangel, and that is the battle we wage now. In fact, they believe we're in the millennial reign of Christ, that Christ is ruling and reigning from a secret chamber in Brooklyn, and that only their elders can see him. When I talk about cults, that's who I'm talking about. That is not biblical. It has nothing to do with Scripture. It is made up. The Mormons. The Mormons believe that Jesus is the brother of Lucifer. Similar story. A created being. Since Lucifer is a created angel, has a beginning and has an end, they believe that Jesus also, and that also along with that, many other doctrines that are contrary to Scripture. But that's the primary one. Because this chapter focuses on Jesus' deity, his Godhead. His... That's why we focus on those two things specifically. We have to understand that. As believers in Jesus Christ, you have to know whom you've believed on. It isn't Michael the archangel, and it isn't someone who had a better plan than Lucifer. It's God's only son, and that he's God come in the flesh. Therefore, everything he says supersedes anything anyone ever said. He's better than the angels. In Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 39, because some say that Jesus never said that he was God. Well, he did. But just not paying attention. And I'm not talking about the one. There is one that says, before Abraham was, I am, and everybody, that's it. Well, yeah, he's the great I am. Jesus is the great I am also. And that's a great verse. You can use it, but I think this one's better. Jesus says, here another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard and set a hedge around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a tower, and he leased it to the vine dressers and went into a far country. Now, when the vintage time drew near, he sent his servants to the vine dressers that they might receive its fruit. And the vine dressers took his servants, these are the prophets, beat one, killed one, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did likewise to them. Then, last of all, he sent his son to them by saying, they will respect my son. Way different than the prophets. Way different than the messenger angels. Way different. But when the vine dressers saw the son, they said among themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and seize its inheritance. So they took him and cast him out of the vineyard and killed him. Not only was Jesus prophesying about his death and his, well, he doesn't talk about his resurrection, but eventual resurrection, but he's also talking about who he is. I'm not like the prophets. I'm not a prophet. Now, here's the thing. Islam believes Jesus is a prophet. Many religions believe Jesus was a mighty man of God, but not God come in the flesh. They all deny his deity. In fact, on the Dome of the Rock, the mosque that's on top of the Temple Mount that replaced it, it says along the outside in Arabic, God is neither begotten nor is he made. A direct confrontation against an affront to Jesus Christ and his deity. We do not serve the same God. We're not all people feeling an elephant. That's one of the descriptions they use. Well, see, Islam is, they're, 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 they're like blind men uh, feeling an elephant, but they don't know how to describe it. And, and one religion is, is, is feeling the, the leg and said, God is like a tree trunk. And, and another religion is feeling his tusk and saying, God is sharp and, and smooth and, and, and so on. The irony of it is that the person describing that story seems to have all knowledge and all, see, all visibility in saying that it's the one God when they have confessed that nobody knows. Christianity doesn't say that. It's not a part of that. We're not describing the same God. Satan knows who Jesus is. And Satan is the father of lies. And Satan is the one that leads other people and every other away from God's word or away from Jesus' deity. One of those two things is attacked, and it's constantly attacked. And so Jesus tells them, I'm the son. I'm the heir. 
See, if there's an everlasting father, we've talked about this also, there has to be an everlasting son. You can't be a father without offspring. How can God the Father be an everlasting father if he doesn't have an everlasting son? It gets better than that. That For some, that's like, well, that's a stretch. It gets better. He says that everything's held together by him. He's the expressed image of God, and he's upholding all things by the word of his power. By the word of his power, he's holding things together. I think we've moved on from atomic glue. They've probably come up with a better scientific term for what holds atoms together, although we still don't know what that force is. There it is. Positive and negatives are not to be together. You know what happens when you try to push those magnets together. They repel. They push away from each other. They separate. Or they collapse on one another, but they don't stay in perfect harmony. Something's holding these things together constantly. Science for now has called it the atomic glue. They've probably since, like I said, come up with a better answer. Genesis 1.1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. In this chapter 1 of Hebrews, he says, Jesus is the one who built these things. There it is again. There's the connection. John chapter 1, moving to a different section of Scripture. New Testament, 1 through 5, in the beginning was the Word. And the word was with God, and the word was God. Now he switches to a pronoun, he. The word is a he, not a force, not an essence, not a thing. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. John goes on in that chapter to finally reveal that Jesus is the word. He's God come in the flesh. Romans 8, 21 through 22. Because the creation itself also we will be delivered from the bondage of corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together until now. Even creation is corrupted by the sin of man and desires to be fixed and knows it's looking for someone to fix it. 2 Peter 3.10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with a fervent heat, both earth and the works that are in it will be burned up, God releasing by the power of his hand every atom. Imagine what kind of explosion that would look like if every atom in the universe... But that's not where he leaves us. Revelation 21, 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. God takes this and recreates a new heaven and a new earth. It's wonderful. And he does it all by Jesus' hand. He's not just a wonderful guy. He's not just my friend. He's my king. He's our Lord. He's the Christ. He's God. He's who we answer to. Verse 5, the writer here goes on to say he's better than the angels, for to which of the angels did he ever say, you're my son, today I have begotten you? The answer is rhetorical, none. And again, I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. But when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels spirits and his ministers a flame of fire. But to the Son, he says, and here it is, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness more than your companions. If the Father calls Jesus God, then we do. Um, The Jehovah's Witness use a Bible that's been updated since the 1984 version. It's called the New World Translation. Not a good translation. I wouldn't advise it. Nevertheless, 
when they come to your door, they won't read any other scripture other than that New World Translation. They believe all other scriptures are tainted. Fine. So I bought one. <laughs> eBay's got a lot of them. <laughs> a lot of people left. So I grabbed one. And as you go through their scriptures, you can see where they've missed portions of scripture where Jesus declares himself to be God. And one of the most telling is Zechariah 12. He's a prophet, one of the minor prophets. Verses 4 through 10. I have to start in 4 because that's when the quotation starts, and it's the Father speaking. He says, In that day, says the Lord, L O R D, this is the Father speaking. I will strike every horse with confusion and its rider. And he goes on and on. I got to get to the point because we can't spend all night reading the Jehovah's Witness Bible. Verse 10, still him speaking. And I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, capitalized, whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one who mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one who grieves for a firstborn. Even their Bible says, now, since 1984, they've made some new revisions and they caught this one and they've erased it. But it was in their Bible in 1984. And then I pointed it out to them and they made a whole new translation. I'm sure it wasn't me. I'm just kidding. But it's there. It's hard to hide it. God made sure. He goes, okay, you can do his main translate. You, I've got so many places in Scripture, you're not going to be able to find them all. Because I'm going to blind your eyes, you're not going to be able to see it. So up until 1984, they didn't have any idea that that was in there. You're going to look at me whom you've pierced, the Father. <laughs> Isaiah 9.6, another one. We use it for Christmas all the time. For unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given, and his name, and you go through all the names, it's one of them's everlasting father. <laughs> See, now when God tries to describe his Godhead, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, even he has, I mean, it's interesting to put into language for us. We don't know how to describe it. We, we do our best. We say, well, the Trinity is like an egg. You got the shell, you got the white part, and you got the yellow, but that doesn't work because those are all separated and separatable. And you can't separate God. Well, he's like a hand with three fingers. You got the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Yeah, it, that's close, except they're distinct and individual at the same time. It's a mystery. It's very difficult. But there it is. You've got Jesus being baptized and the Father saying from heaven, while Jesus the Son is being baptized, behold my Son in whom I am well pleased and the Holy Spirit descending on a dove. One, two, three. How do you, how do you explain that one away? So on. It's obvious. This is important, and I'm going to beat this one all night long because his word, it's by him and it's for you. I don't have to wonder if I need to weigh the words of Jesus or not. It's the Father's words. I don't have to wonder whether I should believe everything Jesus said or some of what Jesus said. It's the Father's word. I don't have to wonder. I can receive it all with gladness, and then I can let it, I can relax, you know. Let it change me. Verse 10. And you, Lord, in the beginning, laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you remain, and they will all grow old like a garment, like a cloak. You will fold them up, and they will be changed. You are the same, and your years will not fail. Scripture I want to go to for this one is Matthew 7. Jesus, when speaking to the Pharisees and the Sadducees and everybody else, trying to explain to them what it's going to be like in the end. Now, we've skipped a lot, but we'll start in verse 21. Jesus speaking, not a parable, but a narrative, a prophecy of the future. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, 
shall enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father in heaven, many will say to me, in other words, we're going to stand before Jesus Christ. He's the judge. He's God. He's got the gates. He's got the entrance. Many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Has the power to cast people out. Jesus is, I'm it. <laughs> it. It says later on in that same chapter, as you as you go further on down, the people were astonished because he taught as one who has authority. That's what he means. He's not like the scribes and the and the and the priests and all the guys that share at synagogue on Saturday. This guy's describing it like he's the one that's going to do this. It's like we're sitting in the presence of God. This is crazy. They were astonished at this. Who says things like this? That's why they wanted to kill him. You're claiming to be the judge. You're claiming to be the one who has life and death in your hand. He's like, I, I am. I am. Jesus is God. But to which of the angels, verse 13, has he ever said, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool? Are they not all ministering spirits sent forth to minister for those who will inherit salvation? All the angels are at his disposal. All the angels. He says that at one point. He says, I could call Peter for 12 legions of angels if I wanted to, but I'm not going to because this has to happen. I need to be crucified. This is part of the plan. And they're the ones that inherit salvation. Angels. They're not someone who can save. They're people that need to be saved. They're a creation of God. I don't know how far into two we'll get here, but we'll start it. Therefore, the writer says, probably Paul, we must give the more earnest heed to the things which we have heard, lest we drift away. That was the concern. Don't drift away, Hebrews, that have become believers in Jesus Christ. Don't drift away. Don't drift away back into Judaism for what you've been set free from that's been completed for you and in him, and now you're hidden in him, and the law is fulfilled in him. For if the word spoken through angels proved steadfast, and every transgression and disobedience received a just reward, how shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation, which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? God also bearing witness both with signs and wonders and various miracles and gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his own will. Now we know that there are lying signs and wonders, and I don't think the writer here is relying upon those as to be the proof that what Jesus said was true, but it is a proof. As he gives glory to the Father and the things that were done by him, the healing, the feeding of the five thousands at different times. It confirmed who he was and what he did. He says, we've got a great salvation in him. This is incredible. No one could have planned this. No one figured this out. Satan thought he had Jesus at the cross. This is it. We can kill him. How is he going to save him now? And realized death can't hold him because he's perfect. And so he was able to rise from the dead and nobody could stop that. And so the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world was without fault, was spotless, was blameless. Verse 5, for he has not put the world to come of which we speak in subjection to angels, but one testified in a certain place saying, what is man that you are mindful of him or the son of man that you take care of him? You have made him a little lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor and set him over the works of your hands. You have put all things in subjection under, under his feet. It was a big deal when he became a man. It was a big deal. When Mary birthed Jesus, God come in the flesh. It's a pretty vulnerable place to be. I won't put God in a little tiny smushy baby, you know. And it'll be up to Mary and Joseph to make sure he's okay. I mean, not really, but God had his eye on him for sure. He made him a little lower. 
Jesus was always about this mission. He was always for it. Despising the shame, but he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him. If this is the only way that these people can get saved, I love them so much, then this is the way I'm going to take. Of course I'll go. Of course I'll do this. Of course this is right. For in that he put all in subjection under him, he left nothing that is not put under him. But now we do not yet see all things put under him. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels for the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for everyone. And this is a mystery. I admit it. And even the Bible admits it. The best way it describes what Christ did and, and, and why it works, because my, I'm a thinking man, and it's, it's a struggle for me to say that if I murdered somebody and Jerry says, that's all right, I'll go to the electric chair for you. I don't, feel, sorry, sat in the front row. I don't feel justice has been served. I don't think anybody in the room would. You're the one who did it. How come Jerry dying makes everything okay? And so there is that struggle. How come Jesus dying on the cross makes us all okay? Scriptures describe that as, as one man brought sin into the world through Adam, so one man brings righteousness into the world for those who trust in him, for those who believe on him. It's the way God planned it. It's the way it works. And I'm sure if we study it more and as we get closer to his second coming, we'll understand it more and more. It's such a mystery that in John chapter 3, he describes it that the, Jesus says, the Son of Man has to be high and lifted up. As Moses lifted the serpent up in the wilderness on the pole, so too must the Son of Man be lifted up. And what a strange story that is. The nation of Israel was in sin uh, again. <laughs> and and, a, and a, the vipers, the snakes were going through and killing all the Israelites. And they, oh, what do we do? What do we do? Cry out for, to God. Help them to say, have them say. And God says, I need you to make a brass serpent and put it on a pole and stick it up in the middle of the camp. And anybody that looks on the pole upon the serpent gets healed. We don't know how that works. That doesn't make sense. Go to Mosaic and say, I got, I've got this. I've got a pole and a snake. Everybody that looks at it is going to be, the doctors would be like, that isn't, what is that? Everybody walks out of the hospital, but nobody knows how that happened. The same thing happens to some people who were sick with these vipers who got stung, who got bit, whatever it is, and they looked at this pole. They got healed. When they believed God at his word, if I look, at the, if I look to God's healing, his way of healing, I'll be healed. I don't understand how it works. Moses doesn't know how it works. Nobody. All they know is God said it, but it worked. And Jesus says, my salvation that comes at the cross is going to be like that. This is the Father's way of saving you. How does that work? You need to believe him at his word. It's by faith. And as you or I look to the cross for the sins that we've committed, we get healed. Forgiveness is given. Salvation is ours. Why are you mindful of us? <laughs> Why do you think about us like this? We are the only creation that God made in his image. No other, no other angels weren't made in his image, we were. It's a strange thing. Why does he think on us? I don't know. Let's see. Verse 10. For it was fitting for him, for whom are all things and by whom are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through sufferings. For both he who sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one, for which reason he is not ashamed to call them brethren, saying, I will declare your name to my brethren. In the midst of the assembly, I will sing praise to you. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, here am I and the children whom God has given me. Inasmuch then as the children have partaken of flesh and blood, he himself likewise shared in the same, became a man. That through death he might destroy him who had the power of death, that is the devil, and release those who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. I don't have to be afraid to die now anymore. 
I don't know that I'm afraid of dying. It's the actual moment and how it's going to happen, I think, that kind of spooks me a little bit. I don't want to know. I don't want to know when, and I don't want to know how, for sure. I'm assuming I'm going to fall asleep peacefully and never even know it took place. But we don't know that, do we? But I do know this, and I'm confident of this, and I have peace in my heart, is that I know what happens when I close my eyes here, I open my eyes there. Because he told me so. So I don't have to fear death. Satan wants me to fear death. Satan wants me to fear a lot of things. He wants me to be terrified. He wants me to be afraid of everything. Everything's against me. Everyone's against me. All of it, you know. And God says, I don't want you to have that fear. I'm here to take that fear away from you. I'm your refuge. I'm your fortress. I'm your strength. I'm truth. I'm love. I'm everything. I'm your all in all. Whatever you're lacking any place else in any part of this life, I fulfill that. Verse 16, for indeed, he does not give aid to angels, but he does give aid to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, in all things, he had to be made like his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For that he himself has suffered being tempted, he is able to aid those who are tempted. Now, the next chapter, which we'll get into next week, he describes how he can sympathize with our weakness. He can sympathize with us. He was here. He did it. He lived the life we couldn't live. He loved God the way we're supposed to love him. He lived a perfect, sinless life. I don't know how that happened or how he did it, except that he was led by the Spirit. Some people say that Jesus lived a perfect life because he's Jesus. How could he not? He's God. You just said so. The the scriptures say that he walked like we walk, under the power of the Holy Spirit, the guidance of the Holy Spirit, and was able to walk this walk perfectly. Not because he was God, but because he had a relationship with the Father. I'd love to be a perfect believer. I would, but I'm not. We have to make the distinction between being saved and walking a son or daughter's life, a son or daughter of the Most High God's life here on this earth. I'm saved, and, a, and for the most part, I walk a godly life. I, I walk the walk like I'm supposed to. Sometimes I don't. Sometimes I sin. Sometimes I fall back into old thought patterns or old emotions. You know, But I quickly repent of those things. I know what that is. I know that's my flesh, and I'm sorry for it. I never give in to it. I never make it a part of me. I never, I never affirm it. It's an enemy of mine. It's a contrary to what God wants me to be. It's contrary to who I want to be. Paul describes that in Romans 7. Why do I do the things I don't want to do and the things I want to do, I don't do? That's the battle that we all have. But that very heart, the very statement itself, tells us that my desire is for my Father, that my heart is crying out, Abba, Father. It tells me I'm a believer. It tells me I'm saved. It tells me I'm adopted. I'm a son or a daughter. Otherwise, I wouldn't care how I act or whether I was obedient or disobedient. It's one of the hardest things, I think, to see our kids who love us, and that, that, that's the key. The key to having obedient kids is by expressing your love to them so much that disappointing you is far more hurtful than any kind of spanking or punishment they might get from you. No, I love you. I, I, I hate to see that. I hate to do anything to you. You've never earned any of that, father, you know, mother whoever you may be in the family. And that relationship and the way God has set up the family here as an as a, as a example of what it's like for him for, with us. I, I, I don't want you obeying me because you're afraid I'm going to drop you into a furnace. I want you to obey me because I love you. I want you to live a life of gratitude after you're saved, after you're saved, after I save you, I want you to live a life of gratitude. And that gratitude is expressed through obedience. I want to do your will. I'm so thankful for what you've done for me. And it's a struggle. Everybody knows it. Everybody has it. But we need to be quick repenters, 
quickly get back on track. Now, here's what Satan does. His, uh, his plan has never changed. His tactics are not new. He will whisper in your ear, you're, you're not a good son, you're not a good daughter. In fact, I don't even know if you're adopted or if he wants you. You're not worthy of any kind of blessing from him. You're not worthy of anything. You need to stay as far away from him as possible, as far away from his word as possible, as far away from his people as possible. Isolate yourself. Stay alone. They don't need you. They don't need your headaches. They don't need your problems. And he successfully removes us from the herd, from the sheepfold. And then Jesus goes and finds us and brings us back because that's not his words. Those are the enemy's words. He wants to bring us close. He wants us to stay close to him. The prodigal son and the father who's looking for his son to return is our final example for tonight. I'm going to stop here. The father doesn't move. He doesn't leave his place of blessing. He doesn't leave his place of holiness. A big thing today. A lot of Christendom believes that God needs to join them where they are in their pit and affirm their sin and affirm their rebellion and let them be who they are. And that's not what he calls us to. He stays put. If we walk away, we walk away, but he's always scanning the horizon for us to return to him. Nothing separates us from his love, but we can separate ourselves from his presence. We can remove ourselves from him. I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. I'm going to live my own life. I want to do my own thing. A very dangerous place to be. All I have to do is climb out of the pit and see where my home is. Where does God reside? Where does my father live? And go back to that place. When you sin, and you will sin, immediately repent from it, turn from it, do a 180 and go the other way, back towards your father. That's what he wants. He's got open arms for you. He's ready to forgive you. Ready to restore that relationship that you've been missing. It made you feel so lonely and so distant from him. Why do I feel distant from God? I don't know. How far away from him are you? How far away have you walked? It's interesting that the third person of the Trinity is called the Holy Spirit. I posted that today. I'm just stealing it. Not the loving spirit. Not the caring spirit. The third person of the Trinity is called the Holy Spirit. It's that important. To be holy for I am holy is God's call on our lives. It's his best place for us. It's the healthiest place for you. (laughs) I brought Casey's up way too many times in the Bible study, but this will be the last time at least for tonight because I'm closing now. I said I was going to close 10 minutes ago, didn't I? Casey's is a real temptation for me, and my kids are always real excited about zebra cakes because that's where we get our zebra cakes from, and that's where we get our Swiss cake rolls or whatever, but those are not good for them. you know. Those don't sustain them. Those don't help them grow. Those hurt them. They're tasty, but they're hurtful. They're painful. This is a very mild version of... Holiness is good, solid, healthy food for us. Satan will offer us everything and anything other than what's good for us. It'll taste good. I mean, we don't sin because we hate it. We don't sin because it's not fun or isn't pleasurable or doesn't make us feel the way we've always wanted to feel. Sin is tempting because it appeals to our flesh like zebra cakes. But what we need is something entirely different, and we need holiness to live your best life. When I started eating healthier, I'm not saying I'm healthy yet, I don't have joint pain anymore. At the age of 53, I shouldn't have joint pain, but there it is. When I drink a Diet Mountain Dew, and sometimes I give in, every one of my joints absolutely throbs and aches. And when I stop, about three days later, after it's all gone, I feel completely better. I don't care what you eat. I don't care what you drink. Have joint pain all you want. Eat as many zebra cakes as you want. Wash it down with a full leaded Diet Mountain Dew or Mountain Dew. I don't care. 
But holiness is what I'm trying to compare it to. God's way is the best way for you spiritually. It's the best way to live your life here on this earth. It is the most glorious, most enriching, most fulfilling way to live the life that you were created to live is in holiness, in obedience to God's word. You bring sin into it, you begin to bring in spiritual joint pain. You begin to bring in aches and hurts and things that you didn't intend. It brings you down. It brings everybody else around you to have to help you because you can't sustain yourself. You can't move. They've got to cater to you. It brings your everything down. When I'm doing what I'm supposed to do and I'm lifted up, I'm able to do other things for other people and I feel great. That's what holiness is. It isn't a punishment. It isn't a no fun life. It's the life we were always intended to live. You were made with certain specifications by your engineer, God. And when you operate within those specifications, you are going to thrive. When we work outside of those specifications, we're in danger. Now let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you for this writer who keeps himself somewhat anonymous because he seems to need to remove the man from the message, I guess. Paul made a lot of enemies trying to share the gospel with Jews. So he leaves this beautiful anonymous letter that anybody can read anytime they want to know. The message he's always wanted to give to them, God. I pray that you help us to receive it tonight for ourselves. I don't know if anybody here is a Jew or not, but probably not. For the most part, we're all Gentiles, and yet we can still identify with all of this stuff. Or keep us close to you. Keep us pure. We want to have that spiritual walk with you as described here by this writer. It's no longer an external show of religion, but an internal walk and relationship with you. And I pray that as we go through this book, you would straighten out things that are crooked in our life and in our theology, God. That's what we want. Lord bless these folks as they go today. In Jesus' name, amen.